straight bout it I'm not pouting Break through walls and climb it mountains If you want it, scream it loud What's up superstars? Welcome to the Brain Tainment Podcast. Listen, if you're someone who wants to build more confidence within yourself, your ability to perform, to execute, to build skills, or to just feel better, or if you're someone who wants to architect a new empowering identity, this is the platform for you. Listen, we have all kinds of guests on this program from the psychology space, neuroscience, sports, as well as cultural icons and influences where we get to pick apart their story and learn a bit more about them. So be sure to subscribe. I hope you get value from this show. If you do, if you do enjoy it, please, please, please do me a favor. Put it on your socials, share it with friends and families who you think this message could help or they would enjoy. And be sure to share the love and tag me on those platforms. We'd love to get some feedback. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Braintainment podcast today. It's a really exciting episode. My guest is someone with a very powerful story of recovering and healing himself, which ultimately leads him down the path of becoming very well-versed in fields like neuroplasticity, understanding anxiety, inflammation, understanding the brain, all stuff that if you've been following this program for a while now, you know that I am wildly passionate about. So I'm sure we'll touch on what that journey looked like for my guest today throughout this chat. He's a chronic illness recovery expert, 10X, uh, TEDx speaker, neuroplasticity coach. He's a co-founder of ReOrigin as well, which we might get a chance to touch on as well. Um, but guys, strap in for what I'm sure is going to be really useful uh, and hopefully enjoyable conversation with my guest today, Ben Ahrens. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. To kick things off, I reckon a good place to start uh, just for some context is maybe uh, walk us through, I guess, a snapshot of what that journey looked like for you. I mentioned um, recovery and healing. And of course, that's something they do a lot of work in now helping other people through that process. But of course, you have your own story. So um, maybe just walk us through what that looked like for you and how you ultimately end up healing yourself, what you learn from that process. And now, of course, you know, why you're passionate to share that information and, and dive further into this space. Sure. Yeah. So I'll say that I was always really interested, curious, and passionate about our ability to change and upgrade ourselves from a really young age, getting into sports and exercise and seeing how the body could change and respond just to the various activities that we do. So that was a real passion of mine. And through college, I worked as a corrective exercise specialist, helping people uh, heal from, from injuries and uh, doing some personal training as well. And started just diving, you know, headfirst into the field of health, wellness, exercise science, and, and all the rest. And in my mid twenties, I was really thrown for a loop. I'm from uh, Long Island, New York, where Lyme disease is, is sort of a common problem. And um, I had been traveling for several years, surfing, actually competing in some different contests and just really um, doing a lot, exerting myself in a lot of ways. But all of these different things, high level of exertion, high level of stress from work responsibilities that I had. I was also running a surf camp at the time, kind of collided with um, a Borrelia infection, which is you know, comes from uh, ticks, which are very common here in the Northeast. And um, within a matter of really days, I just, I literally woke up one morning in a complete fog to the point where, like I, I mentioned in a, a talk that I gave, I literally couldn't identify what my shoes were or like mm. it didn't register in my brain what they were for or what I should do with them. I was just looking at these objects on the ground as if they were completely foreign to me. 
And then the symptoms started to go from brain fog to neurological problems to physical pain that would sort of migrate around my body without any clear cause. You know, normally when we think of pain, we think of it as like a, a natural response to something in the environment. You pinch your finger, you feel the pain. But when those you have a pinch in your finger or that sensation, and then all of a sudden it migrates to your big toe and then back to your finger and then over your left hand, it's really sort of um, confusing as to figure out what's going on. So this just continued on and on for months, getting worse, stranger symptoms happening, and all the while just exhaustion persisting to the point where I literally couldn't get out of bed. And at this point, the common story goes, you go from one doctor to the next, one specialist oh, yeah. to the next, you know, conventional, non-conventional, Eastern, Western, every approach imaginable to get little pieces of the puzzle. And I did a lot of different types of treatments, including antibiotics and, you know, some standard Lyme protocols and found some relief there, some temporary, um, a lot of things that actually made me worse, but you know, eventually over um, years of putting these pieces together, um, I did start to heal. I did a lot of antimicrobials. I changed my diet. I changed my, um, my, my lifestyle. I started doing a lot of relaxation exercises. But the biggest shift that I found came, which became the title of my talk, my TED Talk, which is when I took one deep breath in a moment of sheer terror <laughs> that there was like nothing else I could do. And the impact that that ability to just pause and reset my system that that had, I found when I did that repeatedly, whenever I became flustered, overwhelmed, anxious, upset, um, or even just, ex even just became aware of the symptoms that I was experiencing in my body, if I could catch myself and sort of interrupt that pattern and breathe, change my physiology by relaxing my jaw and shoulders, right? All of a sudden, I would actually physically start to feel better. And the more I did this one little thing, you know, sometimes up to 150 times per day, just reminding myself, this is the only thing on my agenda is just to interrupt yeah. these patterns. The more I actually started to regain energy and my body started to actually heal. And I was doing a lot of um, testing at the time, biochemical testing, brain scans, uh, electro uh, nerve conductivity testing, you name it, you know, seeing a lot of doctors in, in New York and stuff and biomarkers really started to change as well. So that really piqued my interest as to what's going on here. How am I using my mind and this little pause thing, right? Mm -hmm. To have such a dramatic impact over time, right? It wasn't like I did it once and that was, and that solved the problem. It was what I did consistently over time. Um, and that led me into studying the brain, studying neurocognitive rehab and looking at things like what stroke victims had done to regain function of uh, use of lost limbs, um, studying, taking some courses online at different universities and starting to put these pieces together. And then of course, advance that little pause, take a deep breath routine into something that became a little bit more elaborate and robust, um, which we can get into as well. And that sort of found, forms the basis for, for reorigin, which like you mentioned is a, is a program now that I have to help others retrain their brain and regain full health. But just to sum it up here and, you know, long story short, um, took a, you know, several years more, but I did make a full hundred percent recovery. And a lot of that was really due to um, to retraining my brain, how to shift from this sympathetic 
uh, mm. position that it gets stuck in when you experience a trauma combined with high loads of stress. In my case, that trauma was the, the Lyme infection. Um, but just shifting from that into that parasympathetic mode allows your body to naturally do what it does best, which is to heal itself. And so from there, we ended up working for eight years with a great uh, medical company in Manhattan, working with uh, doctors all over the world, traveling, doing seminars, and just learning onward and upward. And uh, the adventure continues to this day. <laughs> it is quite the adventure and there's so much to unpack. And I think what I really like about the way that um, you've shared previously, and of course, even just the way that you position um, that healing journey, bringing it back to this one simple tool, I think is really useful for all of us and we're all going to have our own journey. I know I was talking to you off air about um, my head trauma, which I've made very clear. I've shared a lot about on this program previously, um, but everyone to a certain extent is going to have some sort of physical, emotional, spiritual trauma that they carry in their body keeps the score. And uh, it's very easy to get stuck in that, in that sympathetic state, that fight or flight. I know I find myself there often. So is that something that you're hyper aware of is like trying to make things I guess, provide yourself at the time and then other people now like a, an easy starting point because um, I can't tell you how much I love to geek out on all the different modalities and sciences and they are super powerful. But um, my concern for, for people sometimes is like it can be overwhelming. Like where do I start? Is that something that you're, I guess, it's a long way around of saying, is that something that you keep consciously in front of your mind? How do we keep this as like a practical tool to, to open up that door into healing? Yeah, you know, I, I think you hit on it 100%. And I have definitely myself really fallen subject to that overwhelm as I was acquiring all of these different tools. And I was uh, an early uh, coordinator, co-organizer of the Quantified Self Movement as it came from San Francisco to Manhattan. And so I really geeked out a lot on the data, the analytics, the, the biometrics. You know, even now I have my aura ring and stuff. And so I do like a certain amount of data. But the thing that interests me most is how we can provide the right tools or how we can guide others, guide other people to shift themselves out of that sympathetic state. Because I, I think the most interesting part and challenging part of the equation is that everyone is different. Everyone has different responses. What is you know parasympathetic or let's say sympathetic inducing to me, that, that means what creates a fight or flight response, to, response in me might be very different in you. Mm -hmm. So just for example, you know, um, uh, listening to loud music or something might send me into a little bit of a panic or, you know, give me uh, elevated heart rate where to someone else, they might really love it. It might be engaging, exciting, even to the point where they're, they feel connected and relaxed. Same thing goes for location or environment mm. for some people, you know, a city could be really overwhelming and bombarding to the senses. Well, for the person right next to them, it could be really stimulating and again, engaging, exciting. So, so much of these things are really individual that it's very difficult to just give a blanket protocol and say, okay, you're going to take a every morning, 20 minute ice bath and do this and that. Because for a lot of people that alone could send someone into sympathetic state of shock and yeah. that would be counterproductive. Interesting. So uh, I want to talk about anxiety, um, chronic illnesses, um, and maybe explore why that, to my knowledge anyway, is on the, is on the rise in terms of how many people are struggling with this, this chronic state of anxiety, this chronic, um, you know, uh, 
being stuck in the sympathetic nervous system potentially. Is that something that you found and why do you think that's the case if so? The, the data definitely seems to be pointing in that direction that, that these chronic conditions, so-called mysterious illnesses, including but not limited to you know, anxiety and depression, which have usually more um, in-depth causes behind them, but these types of illnesses as well, like chronic fatigue syndrome, Lyme disease, things that may or may not contain a viral or bacterial or pathogenic component, um, they do seem to be on the rise. Of course, we are also becoming more aware of them. We're testing for them more. So that's part of the reason that they're being discovered more. Um, but I think the, the reason is, is really multifaceted. On the one hand, we do have a changing environment. We have this environment that's becoming more hospitable to microbes, to microorganisms and pathogens, and slightly less hospitable to the internal milieu or the human environment, our environment, um, which is a challenge to the immune system. At the same time, we're dealing with, uh, you know, as a human being with brains that have evolved over millions of years, but just in the last two decades have had to find ways to incorporate technologies, these exponential technologies that grant us access to more information in a day than we've had access to um, in our entire lifetime, entire lifetime, 50 years ago. So we're being bombarded with a lot of information. There's a lot to attend to. Um, and I think that combined with the nature of the information we're taking in, that being primarily fear-based negative with things like pandemic and all the rest, um, just leads to high levels of cortisol in the system, a kind of hypervigilant state where this region of the brain that we know as the limbic system, which is the brain's threat detection and response mechanism essentially, has kind of been set on high alert for many people. Um, its job is to kind of look for problems that it thinks it needs to solve. And oftentimes there are no real problems as such that even have a solution, right? But it's just like that feeling. And it leads to what I've heard a lot of people describe that I can so relate to, I think we all can, is this feeling of like an ambient emergency, mm. that there's always something in the background to which we have to attend, such that if we don't attend to it, you know, if we're not always staying tuned into that, that things will suddenly collapse. We don't even know why or what it means, but it just leads to this, this low level, or in some cases, moderate level of tension in the system. Mm, yeah i that makes so much sense i actually haven't heard it framed that way but this perpetual state of like being prepared for something or feeling in a rush i totally get that i reckon there'll be so many people that resonate um with that that i want to talk a little bit more about neuroplasticity and and i guess get your thoughts on what that what that uh, means how it's useful for people that are wanting to heal um and particularly for for those that are uh, you know, tuning in and relating to that to this conversation around, um, uh, you know, constant anxiety or whatever it might be. I think what is beautiful about this new field of um, emerging studies around neuroplasticity is this idea that we can change. And there's a danger to get stuck in this belief system. I found anyway of I'm a certain way, I'm sick, I'm this, um, and uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts around why it is absolutely plausible that we can fundamentally change our body, our mind and our whole life experience to a certain extent. Yeah. So I think that it's so important to realize that the body, everything is, is changing, changes your nature. Nothing in the universe is static. 
the human body is replicating every cell in the body such that I'm sure many people have heard within seven years, every single cell in your body will be different. And this happens over various cycles, depending on uh, what areas or tissues in the body. So for instance, I think the lining of the stomach replaces itself in entirety every 30 days. We know that brain tissue about every 90 to 180 days is replaced. Even the skeletal structure within about 18 to 24 months is replaced. So all of these cells, these systems in the body are literally renewing themselves and replacing themselves. Oftentimes, if we feel stuck or if our condition is staying the same, it's because the underlying mechanism, the sort of underlying operating system is perpetuating those cells to replicate in the same way that they have before. But if we orient ourselves in a new direction, um, and this will lead into neuroplasticity, then those cells can actually resume their, their natural function, which is to evolve into a healthier state. So we know that we have this, this ability, we call it homeostasis, that's this state of balance. And one really need only turn their attention to nature. I think it's one of the best things to do is just look into nature to understand that this homeostasis and things trending toward health and order being the natural state, whether you're looking at, you know, the a leaf or something up close and you see a very highly ordered structure within the cellular network of the leaf or, uh, you know, fish, the way they swim and coordinate this emergence phenomenon, the way birds fly together and flock together, um, weather patterns, whatever it might be, or even like a seashell, for instance, all you have to do is really look around to find that there are very high levels of organization in nature. And those same levels of order and organization basically are responsible for keeping us in homeostasis and improving our health. It's really only when there's a disruption to that order that our health deteriorates or goes towards degeneration instead of regeneration. And one of the things that can perpetuate that is like we said, it can of course be an acute uh, injury or, or illness or trauma, but it can also be a learned response that mm. happens as a result of, of falling victim, we'll say to that sort of trauma while being in this hypervigilant state. So this is where we get into neuroplasticity, right? So the brain and what neuroplasticity really means is that the brain has an incredible gift, an incredible ability to change its structure and its function for better or for worse. So the same way that it can adapt to high levels of stress and get stuck in fight or flight mode, because that's also a function of neuroplasticity, we can also consciously intervene to retrain the brain to shift into parasympathetic state or put an end to that chronic fight or flight state. So the neuroplasticity is kind of a neutral term. It's not necessarily like a medicinal term. It really works both ways. It's really just pointing to the brain's natural ability to change. But the coolest part to me is that once we're aware of this, mm -hmm. there's actually things we can do the same way we can go to the gym and exercise our bodies to build strength. We can do certain things to exercise our brains and change the way that they're responding to the outside world. And is one good place to start uh being able to focus on your breath is that does that almost allow you to then kind of step in between that stimulus and response on like a day-to-day -day basis to be a bit more conscious about what we do is that like is that from your point of view um a way of being able to train i guess at the very least that learned response to certain stimuli i think that the reason why so many people myself included find their way to the breath and a lot of 
practices, yogic practices, meditation as well, you know, kind of use the breath as their inroad is because it's one of these things that's, that's um, automatic and able to be consciously controlled, controlled as well. And it's a wonderful inroad, inroad into awareness. So to answer your question, I think it really starts with awareness, mm. whether the breath is kind of that thing that reminds you or something else. Some of the tools that we use with my neuroplasticity coaching and with reorigin are we have people create an association to a physical object that we call a totem. So, uh, you know, for instance, it can, it can be anything like here on my desk, I have, I have a compass. And this is just something that is a reminder to me that I've done some brain retraining with um, to just simply associate a relaxation response with this physical object because it has wow. a particular meaning to me, let's say, right? So, you know, breathing is a great way to do that. You can put a, a sticky note reminder on your desk. You can set a, a notification on your phone that's a reminder, but it really comes down to the number one thing is starting with awareness. It's simply becoming aware in the moment that you are um, what we call in a negative loop or in a fight or flight state. Uh, the next step would be to interrupt it. Mm. And are there particular ways to uh, interrupt it that have worked well for you or that you would recommend for other people? Yeah. So, you know, we, one of the things we talk about a lot in reorigin is like this language of the limbic system, how to communicate a message to this very primal region of the brain that um, responds to a lot of different things. And it's also uniquely situated kind of between the brainstem and the cortex, which surrounds it, which is the rational part of the brain. But just because the limbic system evolved before the cortex, it sits at the head of the brainstem, its messages actually get to the brainstem uh, up to a half a second quicker than those from the, the rational mind, which is why let's say you can be driving in traffic and someone cuts you off and all of a sudden you have this knee jerk reaction to yell at the other driver. And then all of a sudden, a second later, the rational mind catches up and says, oh, you know, where did that come from? And it came from this limbic system, particularly from the amygdala. Mm. So what we want to do is engage the rational mind uh, to get in, like you said, that gap between stimulus and response, and then choose a new response. So there are various ways we can do that. One of the ways is by uh, engaging the rational mind through language, we can actually use a certain script and sort of explain to ourselves when we're feeling stuck in fight or flight, that this is the limbic system's reaction, that this is an old learned response. So this is where I think understanding not necessarily, you know, in-depth neuroscience or anything. Like I say, you don't have to understand, uh, you know, electrical engineering in order to operate a light switch, but having a little bit of understanding of what's going on under the hood in your brain can really work wonders for that rational uh, mind being able to intervene. Because when we understand that, then we can start to, to almost relax a little bit. A lot of times what perpetuates anxiety is the is not knowing where it's coming from. It's the meta level thinking, right? It's being anxious about the anxiety. <laughs> I've seen so many memes on that that is so unfortunately like um, relatable, but it's super funny of like, yeah, being anxious about being anxious. And I think to your point, it's to a large extent, it's about re I guess, regaining that sense of agency and control. Understanding, like, oh, this is what's going on. I can maybe do this thing. It's not about... Um, immediately solving all your problems, but having that sense of like, I can have an impact, a positive impact for the better on how I'm feeling, um, I think is really 
really powerful. Um, yeah, I know a lot, a lot of that, that feeling of constant anxiety, fight or flight is feeling like you're stuck there and that you can't do anything about it. Despite all logic, you feel like you're stuck, you're stuck there. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so just by understanding what's going on, that there is this overreaction in the limbic system mm-hmm. and that by that, by having that overreaction, it's perpetuating and circulating certain neurochemicals, particularly cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine. Um, when you know that this is going on, you can get a little bit of distance from it, right? You can say, oh, okay, it's, it's not me. It's, it's my brain. Mm. It's, it's sort of like if, you know, if all of a sudden, unbeknownst to you, let's say uh, someone had you know, injected you with 500 milligrams of caffeine, right? Five cups of coffee. And you started having this very vigilant response, like anxiety and everything. You would probably keep that response going by having more anxiety about the anxiety. Oh my God, what's going on? Where's this coming from? Yeah. But the moment you realize like, oh wait, actually I just drank five cups of coffee. That's where this is coming from. <laughs> That'll probably do now, it. <laughs> even though you might feel those same chemicals and sensations circulating through your system for a time, at least you'll, you'll understand you won't be panicked about it, right? And when we're not panicked about it, then those natural chemicals can actually circulate through the system and diminish over time as they all have a half-life. Wow, that's super powerful. It's almost like changing the story of what's going on. And perhaps to some degree as well, it could be, um, you know, if something's happened in childhood or like there is a physical trauma or a serious condition like you unfortunately had to go through yourself, um, it's the story or the narrative we tell about that would which would potentially impact how drastically those chemicals, which yeah, like that is taking place. And yeah, this did happen to you. Or yeah, this is part of your story. Um, it can impact how drastically that's impacting how you're feeling and how clearly you can think and what you do next. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And that's, that's a really good way to, to frame it and to phrase it actually is about the, the internal narrative. Mm. Um, and that does kind of lead to a next phase or step that we practice with, with this sort of brain retraining process is identifying what's the story that's going on in your head when you're feeling this um, and getting a handle on that and then actually rewriting the script. Because we know that, you know, to your point, um, it's now been shown that anxiety and excitement are neurobiologically identical. That's to say the exact same chemical compounds are circulating through your system. When you feel that it's really comes down to a matter of narrative and then perception to think, you know, how you're going to process that. But we know that again, to use those examples of like how people respond differently to the same stimuli, um, you can have two people, stand at the edge of a cliff, one of them can look out into the the void and just feel terror, like absolute Mm. phobia of of fear. Uh, And the other one can find it really exhilarating and exciting that they're, that they're, you know, out there in the freedom. Mm. And based on that experience, um, their bodily response will eventually change. So those, the one who, you know, keeps on uh, resisting the sensations essentially is going to perpetuate them. The one that enjoys them allows them to flow through the system they're going to dissipate naturally over time yeah really small example of that and a little little fun anecdote is um i've been training for uh triathlons and i I did a half ironman recently uh, albeit in lockdown uh which was which is frustrating just had to do it locally just by myself but anyway 
Um, long story short, um, part of that, of course, is the swim component. And I can't tell you how much I would shit myself when I go out in the open water and that bodily response and the narrative that I have in that moment is like, I'm going to fucking die. And I'm going like, all these things are going to go wrong and X, Y, Z. And now fast forward six, seven months, the same human, right? Myself, the same experience, but I guess just through whether it's exposure, whether it's constantly doing it, whether it's learning a bit more about um, technique and what have you. Now the response is it's almost anxiety. um, it's It's revoking. It's calming being out in the water. And it's something I look forward to. And it's completely different bodily and obviously psychological response from the same stimuli than, you know, even sort of six months ago. Um, And it makes you wonder, like, what areas of our lives can we have that same sort of shift where perhaps something sets us off, we feel anxious, we've got a story about it that maybe we can start making some, some changes around. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's a beautiful example because you're the same person, but your experience has completely changed Mm. just in virtue of exposing yourself to it. And so like one of the things I I very much advocate and we, we talk about it at reorigin and it's incorporated into the program is something called gradual exposure or incremental training. And it's how to make these changes uh, in the brain and in the nervous system and the way we respond uh, over time through consistent training and retraining that, that stress response into more of an excitement, a joy response, right? Or even a relaxation response. And um, it really is this process of, of gradual conditioning. And so a, a third component of what we said, you know, if number one is kind of awareness of what you're going through and the story in your head, number two is interrupting it and starting to shift that. Then the third one is rewarding yourself. And this is so critical because one of the things that the brain also does is it um, emits these rewarding chemicals, dopamine, epinephrine, or sorry, dopamine, uh, endorphins, oxytocin, these things that actually drive you toward something. And normally what happens is we get these rewards um, inadvertently for, in a way, sort of... uh, carrying out a coping mechanism that's evolved. So to give you an example, let's say, if, you know, using your example, if you had a, a fear of, of the water or something, um, let's say if you were trying to overcome that fear, but every time you came close to the water, once that anxiety got to what we call peak state, reached like a peak of anxiety, you would just immediately run away from it. Mm. What would happen is that your brain releases a little bit of dopamine and, and um, endorphins saying, you know, kind of like a sigh of relief, like, whew, oh God, we, we escaped that threat. Even yeah. though we know it's not a, a real threat, it's sort of an empty threat. But what happens is that reward in the brain solidifies that feedback loop and solidifies the behavior telling your subconscious mind that by running away from the problem, you've done the right thing. Mm. And that's something that we want to try to intervene and to change. And so one of the ways that we can do that is by changing the association of the reward. So rather than running away and rewarding yourself, you might go up to the water and just dip a toe in the water. So it might not, it might not feel like a significant action, but as soon as you dip that toe in the water, you're going to, you know, reward yourself, like really congratulate yourself or give a mate a high five or something. Um, And that will actually have the same effect in the brain, that release of dopamine and endorphins, solidifying that neural network that you did the right thing, not by running away, but by sticking with the challenge. Mm. 
And the next time you can go a little bit further, maybe dip your whole foot in, then going up to the knees and so forth. And the more you do this through incremental training, the more you associate that rewarding feeling with sticking with the challenge instead of running away from it. Mm. And then I suppose that can be applied to really anything. Maybe someone trying to enter an exercise routine when you start a business, like all these things that can elicit a level of uncertainty and anxiety or just um, complacency. Uh, just that brick by brick training ourselves to be emotionally rewarded for the, the behaviors. That's a really good place to actually lean into to start to, yeah, to create changes that last because it's so easy to just get stuck in that procrastination of like and having the understanding of why that is is super interesting knowing that the brain to some extent is actually rewarding itself neurochemically for behaviors that we probably don't like whether it's you know not putting the, the runners on to go for a run not going into the water in my example you know not putting yourself out there and chasing the career or business that you're after that's super fascinating yeah, exactly. It's really all about, you know, comfort, the brain, th- there's this part of us and that that part we could associate to the limbic system wants to keep us comfortable, wants to keep us safe. And that's understandable. That's what it's designed to do. It's also designed to optimize the brain and the body for efficiency. It doesn't want to expend any more energy than necessary. But there's this other part of us, what we call the higher self, that wants to go out and start a business or make a difference in the world or get in shape or do these things that require energy expenditure and that require Mm. us to go beyond our comfort zone. So how do we reconcile those two very distinct parts of ourselves, right? And that's often, I think, where most people get stuck. And that's also where the wider the gap between those, the bigger the level of anxiety that we experience, right? Because it's like, oh, I really want to be moving forward. I really don't want to be stuck or have this fear or hold myself back or self-sabotage. But at the same time, this other part of me really wants to keep me safe. (laughs) So, uh, you know, how do we reconcile that? And I think that's the beauty of incremental training and of this type of neuroplasticity that we're talking about is that we can become aware of these. There are very clear and concise steps and things that we can do and and take. Um, And over even a short period of time, what most people find is that by doing this, they actually start to, and by practicing that science of small wins, getting the rewards, they actually start to be driven more and more toward doing things that push them a little bit beyond their comfort zone because the feeling is so rewarding. Mm, yeah, I love that. So useful. I want to bring it back to the, the idea of healing and look at the impact, I guess, of lifestyle and, and sort of day-to-day behaviors and habits um, from your experience what sort of impact can that have on our ability to, to heal? You kind of alluded to this idea that, um, you know, the body wants to return to homeostasis, it wants to heal. And I love that idea, which, so then if that's not happening, it sort of suggests, which I think will, I think we understand to be true that we're probably getting in our own way um, a lot of the time. So in terms of habits, lifestyle, things like that, what do you see? the role there for healing and getting back to a place of just, you know, the body and the mind feeling good. Yeah. So, you know, that was a really big question that came up for me when I was on my own kind of healing and recovery journey. And I started to explore European biological medicine and Chinese medicine and all these different modalities that um, fundamentally 
have the same core belief, which is that the body is designed to be healthy, that homeostasis health is the natural state. And it's only when a certain blockage occurs or something that kicks us off course that we experience anything other than you know, perfect health and harmony and this state of ease in the body. And so of course I had the, you know, the question in my mind, the same question I'm sure a lot of people have, which is, okay, that's great. But if, if health is the natural state, then why, why did I get sick in the first place? Or why do I feel anxious? Why do I not feel at ease if that's where I'm supposed to settle? And the reason goes back to neuroplasticity. It goes back to this brain that's evolved, um, to help us, to keep us comfortable and safe, but is now in an environment that it hasn't yet learned to deal with or might be slightly at odds with. And furthermore, it could have experienced a trauma, an illness or an injury that kicked it over into this high alert mode where, mode where it's now stuck. And so as it pertains to healing, to you know, physical healing, um, Although I don't draw, you know, real distinctions between emotional, mental, physical healing, they're all very much the same and even similar underlying mechanisms. It really comes down to fostering our parasympathetic state, to relaxing the nervous system. The body does heal itself when the nervous system is relaxed. So if we're not in a state of regeneration and recovery, it's usually because that sympathetic branch of the nervous system system has become overactive. And that is keeping inflammatory cytokines pumping throughout the system. That's keeping us out of rest and digest mode. Um, and essentially that's not allowing the body to do its full job to mount all of its resources. The best way to think about it really is that the body is a system of, of resources and it really is this delicate balance of resource allocation where we have sort of different hierarchies, right? And this even goes back to sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where the number one need is immediate survival. If you're not gonna survive in the next five minutes, it doesn't make sense for the body to apply energy toward digesting food, toward improving the function of the immune system, toward you know creating testosterone and hormones necessary for procreation. Uh, because the number one need is survival. So what happens is when, like we said, when you experience these traumas or triggers or acute you know, illnesses that lead to this ongoing stress response is that the body mistakenly thinks that it is under an immediate threat. And so all of those energetic, chemical and hormonal resources get applied toward dealing with the illusory momentary threat that never, that it never finds and that never leaves. So all of the lifestyle changes, you know, to get back to your question about what are these different things, where can we move the needle, right? Where, what are the dials that we can actually tune to start to change this here really come down to um, improving our ability to relax and regenerate. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with like the, the vagus nerve, this is mm. becoming a very you know popular topic. Um, but one of the things that they're looking at more closely now as an indication of good health or good healability, that's to say a person's ability to heal is something called vagal tone. And vagal tone is essentially, you know, how uh, quickly or how efficiently your brain can shift from uh, sympathetic into parasympathetic. And this is something that we see in pretty much all avenues of life. If you wanna to look to any, any system or any kind of uh, you know, function where someone is operating at their best, it really has to do with the, um, the ability to 
to come down to the ability mm. to, uh, to lower the heart rate when people, you know, like marathon runners or, or athletes, a lot of times, like if they suffer a stroke or a heart attack, which happens to surprisingly young and healthy athletes, sometimes it's not because of the exertion. It happens when they stop running. It happens because they can't pull out of the dive. They haven't trained that mechanism of how to bring themselves down. That's why they say, you know, when you're running a long distance or doing something extremely strenuous, you need this cool down period. Well, there are ways to improve the function of the brain and nervous system to allow your body to cool down quicker. Um, but it's only when those, you know, uh, step downs are too, too big that the body can kind of become overwhelmed by it. So, hmm. you know, some of these lifestyle things are um, breathing exercises are great. Other ones we mentioned are, you know, cold exposure, but really the key is to do these things staying just outside your comfort zone, not making too big of a leap that will further overwhelm the system because that can have the opposite response. Mm. That's very interesting. Something that just came to my mind just then as you're talking about um, that inability to, to come down and, you know, as a marathon runner or just an, you know, an everyday person, that seems that resonates with me a lot and i wonder if people find themselves stuck in this state that we you know coming back to this like fight or flight i wonder if that's because as we start to slowly shift out of that sort of more frantic state if we're not used to it there's some discomfort potentially that comes with that feeling and it's like ah i don't like this even though the body is craving it um we will have another coffee. We'll do something else. We'll jump on social media because we want to stay in that state. Um, is that the case? Because that feels like something that I feel like I've been stuck in the habit of doing. And I can only imagine other people would too. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You know, right on the money. Um, it's, it really comes down to familiarity. Mm. And I'm not even talking about just like emotional familiarity or mental familiarity where your mind tends to settle, but actual chemical familiarity. It's, it's literally addictive that they've, they've found that the state of stress, the state of being hypervigilant, of being outraged, of being caffeinated, all of these things are highly addictive. And so when it comes to changing that, the way that I approach that is by not simply weaning off it, but by changing one addiction for another. So they've found in, in addiction uh, recovery clinics that what makes it sustainable is to actually replace it with something else. So another key component of this type of neuroplasticity training is to not just try and stop your response because that can actually lead to more stress because, okay, you're trying you know, calm yourself down. What does that even mean? Like where sometimes people feel like, who am I or, or what should I, what do I feel like without yeah. this stress level, right? It can be right. so, so persistent. So instead what we wanna do is not even move away from it, but change it and replace it with a different response. And this takes some practice and it takes a little bit of forward thinking. Num the, the number one question being, what is that response that you're gonna replace it with? And so the very first thing we have people do when they come to, to reorigin is actually um, identify for themselves uh, a clear vision or several different visualizations that they can go into that would give them this calm state and mm. really think through and work through, you know, what are these other um, 
states that they can get into, whether it's seeing themselves with family and friends, you know, through visualization or, um, uh, you know, taking a trip or traveling somewhere or reaching the top of that mountain, you know, in a great hike, something that gives you a, a wonderful feeling that you really want to have, but that's sort of the, the counter feeling. It, it counters chemically the feeling of anxiety or mm. it counters chemically the feeling of whatever it is that specific uh, thing that triggers you. So we replace, you know, we have people identify their specific triggers and the, and the feelings that go along with that, because every, with every feeling comes a specific neurochemical and mm. cocktail that goes with that. And then based on that, we have them replace it with the opposite, um, the opposite feeling, the opposite neurochemical cocktail. So it's kind of like a, they're, they're learning how to, in a way, uh, you know, self, I don't want to say self-medicate, but but through natural means by getting mm. their brain to release or to trigger the release of these chemicals. We know that the body can produce virtually any, any chemical compound in the world, certainly any chemical compound that a pharmaceutical could. It's just a matter of using your mind to change your brain, to change the chemicals in your body, which then result in the body changing itself. Mm. I love that so much, Ben. Um, and this, this field, this conversation, like it's so, it's interesting, um, but it's so, um, it's so exciting when we can start to take bits and pieces and apply to our own lives. And yeah, I think we've scratched the surface of that today. I'd love to chat for hours, but I'll let you go. How can we learn more about, uh, how can we learn more about you, about the work that you do with the neuroplasticity coaching about reorigin? How do we find you? Yeah. So everything is on reorigin.com. That's re-origin.com. We've got our socials from there as well. Uh, reorigin underscore official is our Instagram and um, people can learn about it that way. And yeah, on a last note, I just want to leave people with a message of, of hope, knowing that everything can absolutely change, changes your nature. There is so much reason to be hopeful and just dovetailing off this very last portion of the discussion that we had, um, whether visualization or actually in the real world, you don't have to wait for things to change. You can start right now by simply turning your attention and perhaps your actions to doing the things that make you feel good. And it sounds so simple, but the effects are so profound. The more we spend in that state of feeling good and at ease, the better. So I just want to uh, leave people with that message that the, the results from that can be you know, profound in and of themselves. And um, this was a great conversation, Liam. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you again, Ben. That's fantastic, mate. We'll have to get you back on for round two. Appreciate Sounds you coming the time. Um, and I'll put all those links in the show notes as well. So thanks again. Awesome. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate the support you guys are showing to this platform. If you got some value from this episode, if you enjoyed it, please do share it on your socials with friends and family. really helps grow the channel uh, and the mission and everything we're trying to do here with Braintainment. So spread the love. I would be forever grateful. And of course, if you've got some real insights from this episode, hit me up, find me on social, shoot me a message. I'd love to engage and have a chat with you guys. So that's it for now. Until the next episode, thanks again.